Okay, Liz, here's some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs, you cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems, and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. I mean, the craziest thing is we have lived in L.A. longer than we lived in Kansas City. Like, I feel like such a Kansas City person, but maybe we're Angelinos. Well, and not only that, Sarah, but I realized with Gretchen the other day, that I think as of like a, another year, I'll have lived in my house longer than I lived in Kansas City. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. We are Angelinos. Yes. Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world. I'm Sarah Fain, a TV writer and producer living in Ojai, right outside of LA, and with me is my high school friend and writing partner, Liz. That's me, Liz Craft. On this podcast, we talk about being writers in Hollywood, how we balance a career and friendship, and how to survive the war of attrition that is life in Los Angeles. Today, we are going to talk to one of our best friends, TV writer Kareen Rosenthal, about what it's like to be a number two on a TV show. Then we have a mailroom question about what our lives would look like right now mid-strike if Fantasy Island had gotten picked up. And this week's Hollywood hack comes from our executive producer, Chuck Reed. It's great for summer travel. And finally, Liz has a recommendation. But first, Sarah, I have an update. I want to let everyone know that Gretchen, my sister Gretchen Rubin, talked about her new book, Life in Five Senses, on my sister-in-law, Olivia's podcast, which is called Olivia's Book Club. It's a great episode about the five senses, and also Olivia's podcast is great for anybody who loves books and is looking for recommendations. She always has amazing authors on. She gets everybody. Um, So check out Gretchen on Olivia's Book Club. Okay, it's time for From the Treadmill Desks Of, in which we discuss what's most pressing in our work psyches. And this week, it's the role of a number two on a TV show. And we have one of our best friends, Kareen Rosenthal, here to discuss. Kareen began writing for television in 2004. She's written for many shows that were canceled after one season, such as the before-its-time half-hour comedy Kitchen Confidential, starring Bradley Cooper in his first leading role, as well as for Fox's longest-running scripted hour drama Bones, where she wrote many fan-favorite episodes. Kareen is the daughter of a Midwesterner and a Mexican immigrant who met on a naval base and were married for 53 years. And we'd literally try to hire Kareen on every show we work on. 
Yes, but she is very hard to get. But we finally got to work together on Fantasy Island, which was so much fun. And currently, Kareen is a co-EP on Will Trent on ABC, which just got picked up for season two before the strike. Kareen, welcome. Thank you. Hi. We want to just start off in the simplest way, which is explain what a number two does on a show. Well, (laughs) part of the answer is that there is no specific thing a number two does. I think um, the role of a number two depends on whether it's a single showrunner or co-showrunners. I think that makes a difference for one Mm. thing. I think that oftentimes if a showrunner is one person, they need a number two to be almost like a co-showrunner with them, someone who's with them in the trenches step by step. They can bounce everything off of. Sometimes they can split duties Like I've seen a showrunner who was really focused on scripts and his number two did all the editing. And in in a case like that, then there's usually a co-EP who is not the official number two, but then they are running the room and really in charge of kind of story and making sure the pipeline continues. And then in a case where there are co-showrunners or just a showrunner who perhaps is more experienced, or not even more experienced, just someone who wants to take on all those responsibilities on their own, then the number two is primarily in charge of making sure the stories for the season are progressing, that scripts are being assigned and written on time, and things are getting approved. But I would say, like with everything in TV, there is no manual that says, here's what a number two does. Yeah, I think one thing that makes you so great in the role, just observing you, um, is that you really take it on. You take on the responsibility. If you know episode 12 is coming next week, you're going to need an outline. You you will stay up and worry what is it and work on it and bring something in. Whereas if you're just on staff, I don't think people feel nearly as much responsibility, understandably. And that can be a big burden, but it is, as you always say, that's the job. I think, yes, I agree. And that is my nature. And I think there are number twos who can just be like, nope, sorry, you know, I'm not doing what... But I I do feel a huge sense of responsibility to make sure that happens. Well, and Corrine, a key part of this job is tapping into the sensibility of the showrunner, right? As you said, it's really, the job is to bring the showrunner's vision to life. Even whether or not that's your vision, that's what makes a great person in this role is someone who's interested in the showrunner's vision. Mm -hmm. How do you go about tapping into the vision? Well... I think I pay a lot of close attention to reading scripts of the show, watching previous episodes, or, you know, if there's just a pilot, just watching the pilot and picking up what they like and what they don't like. And something that I think I've learned is that if a showrunner has an idea about something, just go with it. And that doesn't mean it will end up in the episode, but I think that All of us have been in the experience, especially when our first few years, like you hear this, the best idea wins, which is true-ish, but really it's the showrunner's idea that wins. Mm -hmm. So I think that there can be um, a feeling in the room where it's like something comes up 
and everyone's really excited if the showrunner's not there and it's different than what the, sh- the last thing the showrunner said. And so you want to just go down that road because it's really, you know, this is exciting and I think this is going to be better. But I'm now very used to being the, what seems like the spoil sport of saying mm-hmm. like, well, let's stay on this track because I've just, I've been through it and I know that it's it's not the best use of our time. Like, like let's just keep these beats unless I'm going to step out and talk to the showrunner and say, mm-hmm. hey, we have this completely different idea. How do you feel about us pursuing that? Because it just is easier. It's just easier to go in the direction that the showrunner feels. And, and look, whenever I answer about being a number two, I'm sort of talking about all theoretical number twos, not specifically my experience. Yes. So yeah. there are many showrunners who are not precious about their ideas and who are fine with you exploring different things or going down different roads. But it's very hard for all of us, whether you're the showrunner or someone who just missed a couple days of the room, to come back in a room and have the story be very different. And if you weren't part of the Mm. process that took you from step to step to get to that new place, it's really hard to make the jump to say, oh, I see why we did that, or I see why that's better. And there are some people who are able to do that pretty easily, but it's hard. So it's just better to make sure the showrunner is with you each step of the way. And therefore, you're always checking in with them to make sure that it is fulfilling their vision. Yeah, I will say there's nothing we love more than a number two coming in and saying, okay, we've gone down this totally different road just FYI, should we keep going down that road or go back to the road that you put us on before you went to casting or whatever? And sometimes it's like, yes, go down the other road. But very often it's also an opportunity to like clarify what it is that you are invested in in the previous road. Mm-hmm. This is why we want to go down this road. This is what we're looking for. This is the bigger picture. This is, you know, so that moment of check-in is so essential. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that also part of that, what you're saying, Sarah, is as a number two, is you have to be able to do that check-in, which when a showrunner is very busy and has lots of other things, and um, everybody who works on a show feels like, why is the showrunner frustrated when I come to them with questions, when I'm just trying to help them? Like, this is all in service Mm -hmm. of their vision. But the point is that they have 40 people coming to them every day, and it's so hard to stay on uh, track. That's not to say, again, I, here, I, let's put this blanket statement out there. Liz and Dan, who I'm currently working for, none of this has to do with you. You are the best <laughs> showrunners ever, and um, I love being your number two. So let me just, like, make yeah. that, because I feel like I'm, I'm couching everything I say based on, like, I don't mean you, I don't mean you. Um, um, but I think that um, sometimes you're like, oh, I really should run this by the showrunner, but they're, they're going to be irritated about being interrupted. They're going to, you know, it's going to be hard for them to hear me because they're focused on something else. And you just have to sort of suck it up and be like, that's, that's my job. So, Well, you just mentioned Liz and Dan who run Will Trent. Yes. Which you're on right now. And that is actually a perfect segue to another question we have about how you pick your jobs. Because you're very in demand. As we know, we said we've tried to hire you so many times and only once have we managed to to get you on staff with us. At this point in your career, what are you looking for? How do you know as as much as you can that a job is going to be a good job? Well, 
It's interesting because when I started working in television, it was in a way a lark, which doesn't mean I didn't take it seriously. It was just not something I had been aiming for or planning for. It was almost like a mercenary thing that was a later career. I was like, I think I could do well at this. I think I would enjoy this. And I think I'd be able to support myself. Let me try this. And if it doesn't work, I'll do something completely different, which is so different than when you come from a place of this is my dream and I must do it, you know, that kind of uh, Mm -hmm. energy. So when I got into television writing, it was just such an amazing thing that I got paid to be creative and think of stories and write things. It just was like, this is fantastic. And because of that, um, I'd say that my goals from the get-go were just, I want to work with good people in good, healthy situations. That was sort of, that was my goal when I started. Anyway, so that's how it started. Well, Kareen, how much of it is about the material versus who the showrunner is? I think both are very important. And I will say if I'm going to be a number two, which again, this is actually the first time I've been an official official number two. I mean, in a couple other situations, there were a number of us that kind of shared number two Hmm. type roles. And then I have been, I've run the room many times when I'm not the official number two in situations where maybe there are like two showrunners or something like that. Um, But when I interviewed with Liz and Dan, I thought it might just be for consulting or something like that, which I was happy to do. And they asked me if I would be the official number two. And so I said, yes. Um, But if it's for a number two position, then I think the people you're working for to me are more important than the material. I wouldn't do it unless I had a connection to the material and thought I could be helpful and thought I could write it and thought I would be good for the stories and felt excited about working on it. That's all a given. But if I felt all those things and I had a weird feeling in my stomach about the people, I wouldn't do it. And even with Liz and Dan, I met them. They came to me very highly recommended. <laughs> I was recommended to them, but but like I do my d- due diligence as well and heard nothing but glowing things about them as human beings, which was important and was completely true. And they were um, they've been really wonderful to work for. And it's funny. I met them, took the job, we started work, and then that first week of work, I suddenly remembered something I had said to friends in the past, which was, oh my God, I'm never going to accept a number two job with people that I haven't worked for before. Mm. And I suddenly remembered, oh shit, I just, I just did that. <laughs> and it wasn't because Liz and Dan were hard to work for. It was because it is so stressful and vulnerable and nerve wracking to kind of start that position. That's how I feel, honestly. I mean, some people might come into it totally confidently and I'm confident in my abilities, but there's a certain amount of trust that needs to happen to be able to be creative. And so like with people that I've worked with before in a room or that know me or we've worked on anything together, I feel a lot of comfort with just pitching things, trying things because everything doesn't feel like a test. Like, Oh, Mm -hmm. was this a good, was this a good story? Was this a good idea? And I think if people don't know you, it can feel like everything's a test And so until you get to a more secure spot, it's just very stressful. And I will say that that was my own personal work to have to get over. I have, in fact, I have my little (laughs) stickers 
um, that a friend of mine, when I was very nervous, when I started, made me put on my computer, which is just like reminding myself, my presence is enough. Mm. And she made me put, she made me put this, they are lucky to have me. Like, like just remind, <laughs> like these were, these were the things that were just like to kind of calm yourself down. Because again, it's not up to the showrunners to make me feel comfortable. Like that's my job. I need to make yeah. myself feel comfortable and secure enough to do this. And um, as soon as I kind of like just centered myself and got into it, it was like, you know, we're here. I just have to take the leap. It's the same as what you've said about telling staff writers. You got to just start pitching things, even if you're scared. It's just the same thing at a different level. It's like, you know what? Start, just break the story in a particular direction, throw something out, and you just have to deal with it. Mm. That actually leads to our next question, which is about mentoring. You talked about it's like a upward-facing and a downward-facing job. A huge part of being a number two is mentoring the rest of the staff, particularly the lower level writers. How do you approach that? Well, I take that aspect very seriously. I mean, that's part of it kind of related to what we're talking about now with like the strike and things like that is this idea of apprenticeship and working your way up and learning things along the way. And I feel like a staff that feels taken care of does better work and is less trouble for the showrunner to deal with as well. So I think it's helping people feel safe in the room and feeling safe expressing themselves, comfortable expressing themselves, helping them, whenever possible, learn why we're going in a certain direction. Because again, all of us who've been in it for a while, we've all had that experience where it's like someone will pitch something and you're like, yeah, that's not going to work. Let's just go over here. And someone else is like, well, 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 wait, why is it not? And you're like, I, I, I don't have time at this moment. Like, just trust me. That's not going to work. Yeah. Let's go over here. Um, and then taking the time later to explain it or to make sure that they, at the end, to check in and say, do you, do you see why that happened? Do you know why that didn't work out? Or that, you know, so you start to kind of build those muscles of what's working and what's not working, what's going to lead to more story or not. And then there's a lot of just hopefully modeling how to behave in a room, treat people in a room. Again, I'm not trying to say I'm perfect. Not, I mean, not tooting my own horn here. It's, it's like, I, I, again, for anyone listening to this, I make plenty of mistakes. <laughs> I, I, I've done many things wrong. Um, but um, many, many, oh my God, when I look back, when I look back, I, you just have to, you can't, I have to keep moving forward and just try and learn from them. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, and also to be, I think it's, it's very vulnerable to be a writer. And I think as the number two, you want to be the person that writers can come to and say, was my outline okay? Was my, you know, I'm nervous about this. Yes. I said this in the room. Was that, was that bad? Was this okay? Or what did you think of this? That you can help them feel more secure and explain, you know, maybe we can work on this. Maybe we can do this. Yeah, because I think at the end of the day, what some people miss is that the more time that we all spend helping the lower level people, the more they're then going to turn in scripts that are closer to the mark yeah. and and end up saving everyone time. And then, of course, it's also better for them and their careers. So really, everyone wins when the, sh- the number two and the showrunner and whoever's in that position do spend the time but it can be hard because of the stress and the deadlines and the this and the that. It gets lost. So I love that you make that a priority. And, you know, 
you also have a sterling reputation. And I think that's part of the reason, because everybody knows how much time you do spend uh, mentoring. I want to say a little bit about mistakes, though, as a number two. As a number two, because I want to be kind and supportive, I think that in the past, one thing I've done is I haven't, I've let people probably have some bad habits in the room. Mm. You know, I, I haven't nipped bad habits in the bud in a way, which I think is part of the job. But finding a way to, to do that without making someone feel shamed or stifle their creativity or anything like that. And what I mean by that is I am not one of those people who's like, you can't, you can't express a problem unless you have a solution. To me, that's way too high a bar. <laughs> I, can't, you know, I think you can express a problem in a really constructive way and be like, I think this might be a problem. Do any of you have, you know, can someone talk me out of that or can we look at solutions? So it's not that I think that people can never say anything critical in the room. But I do think when we started, there was a lot of, you know, do, do more listening than talking. Yes, talk, but listen. And if you don't understand, if like three upper levels are discussing a story and going in a direction where you can't follow what's happening or like, wait, why are they saying that? Your job is to try and figure it out, to listen and to try and figure out where they're going, why they're saying these things, and then try and contribute. And I think that sometimes when people are like, whoa, 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 I don't understand. Can someone, like, what's happening here? I think I, in the past, years past, have erred towards saying, okay, yeah, that's great. So if this is confusing, let's talk about it. And then you want to like, kind of that, that stuff that I'm talking about now that I try and do outside of the room, I would do in the room, like leading mm -hmm. someone through and explaining everything. And really, it was almost like you're taking the room down to the level of the person who's the most confused, as opposed to keeping the room at, at like the most functional level and, and the other people have to keep up. Yes. So I feel like sometimes I, I am concerned that some of the newer writers that I worked with years past kind of got into a habit of thinking that the way that they could be the most productive in the room was to <laughs> say, hey, I, this doesn't make sense to me. This doesn't make sense to me. And I'm like, well, that's actually, that's not the most productive way. So again, that's on me. That's on mm -hmm. me. I, I've gotten, I think, better about like gently steering things. So, Well, Green, we think it's much harder to be a number two than to be a showrunner. And it's obvious just from the thoughtfulness of your answers and how much like effort you put into both the upward facing and the downward facing it's obvious why you are highly in demand and why we keep trying to hire you. I'm so glad we finally got to work together. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. That was fun. Thank you, Corrine. Oh, you are so welcome. Coming up, we have a letter from the mailroom asking what we would be doing right now if Fantasy Island had gotten picked up. Liz, there is nothing I love more than having a delicious meal that I didn't have to cook, which is why I have been getting no prep, no mess meals from Factor. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. Factor's 
fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Last night, I had blackened salmon with broccoli and with cauliflower rice. It was so delicious. It was the perfect dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash HIH50 and use code HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code HIH50 at factormeals.com slash HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I don't know about you, but we're always looking for ways to get our kids involved and give back in our local community. That's why we're excited to tell you about Student Visionaries of the Year, a campaign by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which is the largest nonprofit organization dedicated to creating a world without blood cancers. Student Visionaries of the Year is a seven-week philanthropic leadership development program for high school students. Participants form strong teams and fundraise in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor in their local community. I would love for Violet to do this program when she's in high school. This program is transformative. It not only helps students develop valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship, not to mention it looks great on college applications, but most importantly, it's also a chance for them to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on blood cancer patients and their families. You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Okay, Sarah, it's time for our mailroom segment. And this week we had a question from Catherine. She said, I'm not in the Hollywood writer's world. If Fantasy Island had been renewed, how would it have played out given the strike? Well, that is a really good question, and that is a question that many people are grappling with right now. And I would say, Sarah, the fact that we're not dealing with that question is the one and the only advantage to Fantasy Island not getting picked up for a season three. Totally, yes. There are so many showrunners right now whose shows are producing the last few episodes of scripts that they can produce and the showrunners are just not there and people are not doing editing, people are not prepping for more episodes, like anything that wasn't done on or before May 1st just isn't getting done, at least by the showrunner. So that is what we would have been doing. I think timing-wise, we would have been writing on Fantasy Island and we just would have stopped and we wouldn't be doing any prep for shooting in the future. You just stop. Pencils down and everything else down. Yeah, the Guild's uh, position is that for a showrunner, everything you do intrinsically involves writing, so you really can't do any of it during a strike. But it's a really hard position to be in because, of course, the studio, who you have a relationship with, who has supported your show, et cetera, et cetera, is wants you to keep doing those producing duties. So it's a very difficult position to be in. And although I know, knowing you and I, that we would have walked away and done pencils down, we would have lost a lot of sleep over it. We would have had churning stomachs. We would have been talking about it endlessly. We would have been stressing about it. We would have been fielding calls from various people. 
So I am happy not to be in that position as much as I do wish, in a sense, we were in that position because it would mean we had a season three. Yeah. And we were talking about this exact thing with our friend on the picket line the other day. He has a show that is currently in production and he's just not there. And I could, I mean, you could tell how hard it was for him. He was biting his nails all the time because you just feel like you should be there. This is your thing. And yeah, you do feel bad about all the people that you work with, but he was just like, nope, I'm not going. I am, I am here. I am not going. Well, and the other issue is, so that can lead to then, of course, the show shutting down, which is what we want to happen as a guild, because that will lead more quickly to making a deal, right? The, The faster we're not shooting shows, the faster they'll give us a fair deal. But the problem is then all the people who work on the show are suddenly out of work. So there's that level of responsibility, too, that you're then feel like you're the person who's keeping everybody from their job. So even though you're not, it's the fact that we can't get a fair deal that's keeping everybody from their jobs. It is really a lot of pressure. So that's what we'd be smack in the middle of right now. Yeah. And we were in the last strike and it was not fun. (laughs) No, it was not. And we walked away and we got fired the day we returned. Not saying those two things are connected, but it's hard not to notice the correlation. Yes. Coming up, Chuck has got a Hollywood hack for us, but first, this break. Liz, it's time for this week's Hollywood Hack. We have a special guest appearance from our executive producer, Chuck Reed, who has a hack that will help with all of your summer travel. Yes. Chuck, tell us about Tripsy. Okay. Yeah. This is a uh, travel app that organizes all your trip details in one place. It's called Tripsy. There's a few others out there. I don't I don't know if this is the best one, but it's highly rated and it seemed like the best one of the few that I saw. And some of the things that I like about it are if you have multiple people traveling, like different family members, which we do, we have a trip coming up. And you can actually email your reservations to it. Like, for instance, we have flights coming up, and I got the reservation email from the airline. I literally forward it to my link, and it populates in an itinerary on the app for everyone. And you can do that with restaurant reservations, train, planes, um, hotels, planes, trains, and automobiles. (laughs) (laughs) Hotels. That's so great because then you're not all doubling what you're doing. So if someone makes a dinner reservation on a Tuesday, you know, okay, Tuesday is covered. Right. It populates in your common itinerary. Yeah, it would also be great. <laughs> I have to say, I wish I had known about this weeks ago because I have, I'm have i taking Violet to Washington, D.C. tomorrow. And I like did a full itinerary in Google Docs so that I know everything. And I'm like, oh, I could have just had it on Tripsy. Um, but I think this is also a great hack for assistants who make travel plans for their bosses, not just yes. for family, but for them, because, uh, you know, it's such a pain to get all that information in there. This could really ease that. That workflow. Yes, I'm yeah. definitely going to use it. I started out the same way with starting a Google Doc. I'm like, oh, this would be these. I'm like, there must <laughs> be something for this. And I just Googled it. I didn't Google it. I looked on the App Store, the Apple App Store, and there were several. And this was one of the top rated ones. So, one caveat mm-hmm. is 
I don't think you can print out a physical paper uh, print mm. of the itinerary. I'm 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 not hundred percent sure, but I've been looking around for that, and I don't see a way to do that. Which I like to have a physical thing in my hand too. Yeah. Well, especially if you don't know if you're going to have Wi-Fi and stuff like that, you want you want to make sure you can access it. Right. Yeah. You could screenshot and print. Yeah, you could do that. Um, well, I love that. All right, Chuck. Tripsy, this is perfect timing. Beginning of summer, everybody's going to be traveling, so check out Tripsy. And finally, every week we recommend a book, a movie, a podcast, or anything we love. Doesn't have to be new, just something that we are into. And this week, I am recommending the limited series Love and Death on Max. It stars Elizabeth Olsen, and it was created by David Kelly. Sarah, it's based on a true story about infidelity and murder in Texas. A woman named Candy is at the center of it, and it is just super entertaining, gripping. Also, it looks beautiful. It's set, I believe, in the late 70s, so it's got that look, you know, fun clothes, fun houses. Your favorite. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's just something, a great summer television, premium popcorn, premium buttered popcorn, I would even say. Wow, nice. I, I'm glad that you're talking about Love and Death because it's completely off my radar. I was yeah. like, what's Love and Death when you brought it up? So now I will check it out. Yes. And that is it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood. We love hearing from you. Email us or send us a voice memo to happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and please follow us if you haven't already. Thank you to our guest, Kareen Rosenthal. Watch Will Trent on Hulu. Thanks to our executive producer, Chuck Reed. And thanks to everyone at Sancola Sound. You can follow them on Instagram at Sancola Sound. Thanks to everyone at Cadence 13. And as always, thank you to Gretchen Rubin. Happier in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. Listen to the other Onward Project podcasts, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, Side Hustle School, and Everything Happens with Kate Bowler. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram at Fain and Liz is at Liz Craft. We also have a Facebook group. Search for Happier in Hollywood on Facebook to join in on the conversation. Until next week, I'm Liz Craft. And I'm Sarah Fain. Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. Sarah, how was Violet's birthday party? It was so fun. We went to this awesome, like, wildlife sanctuary place, and they fed porcupines oh. and um, got to pet a sloth. And, of course, there was a giant snake, which was Violet's favorite thing, and a huge African bullfrog. I was like, oh, my God. It was so big. So how was big was it? It was really it? nice. Oh, uh, I mean – at least it was, it was so big. It was kind of a, like it was flattened laying down and it was like a big circle, at least like six or seven inches around. Wow. Yeah. From the Onward Project.